Hello, this is Nancy Wilson, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From the LA Times, Astroworld organizers had extensive medical security plans. Did they follow them? For music business worldwide, TikTok and social media's explosion in music is only going to get louder. From Hypebot, will alternative monetization drive tomorrow's music creator economy? And from Spotify for artists, celebrating artists' success with Spotify charts. New website, new charts, and new features. Yeah, baby, it's episode number 66. This is the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee. The weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, good morning, Jay. It's so good nice morning, to see you in my little screen in front of me here. Hard to believe that we're on episode number 66, wow, Route 66. I, I can't believe it. It seems like just yesterday we started having these conversations, at least recording them. We've been having conversations for a long time. We just decided <laughs> why not just met. hit record and right. have a little coffee talk together. And it's just been such a blast. And we were talking before we... Uh, we hopped on that we're getting a lot of really cool feedback. Um, I love the messages that I'm receiving from folks. Sometimes it's a question. Sometimes folks uh, <laughs> think that I write these stories, and I have to. <laughs> That's right. I have to remind them. Um, you know, don't shoot the messenger. You know, um, I'm a curator. Um, yes, yeah. I have written a few pieces, um, but you know, maybe two or three a year. Uh, most, if not uh, all of these are, uh, you know, from other uh, writers and people who are really super talented and do the research. You know, you and I talk sometimes about, you know, Glenn Peoples and Sherry Hu and Amber Horsburgh and, you know, uh, Tim Ingham, you know, the folks at Media. There's so many great sources for music news. And, uh, you know, that's kind of our job. We'll curate it. We'll tell you what we think is interesting. And we love hearing the feedback, but please don't shoot the messenger. Well, we take, we try to take the best of what, what has been written that week and talk about it or the things that are most sort of pertinent. And, but having said that, it's, it's really hard to choose because oh there's so much out there, so yeah. much out there. And there's yeah. so much, and we've talked about, this has kind of been probably the theme of the show throughout the years is, is how challenging it is right now 
to be involved in in the production of music and the marketing of music and the distribution of music and and yeah. all of that artist development because there's just so many moving parts in a, at a time when there didn't used to be that many moving parts it was always challenging that's right um, it's dynamic you know we were talking about this in in nashville last week that it's so hard for artists managers labels distribution to keep up because it's changing so quickly and evolving so fast. That's what's so fun about, you know, curating your morning coffee, the newsletter and having these conversations on this podcast with you about these stories is, you know, we're learning too. you know, we're, we're watching this evolve and change. Well, and we've talked about too, you know, how many of our peers and friends and colleagues, former colleagues, um, you know, how challenging it is to, you know, if you were, if you I suppose if you start now, it's just, it is just what it is. But, you know, for yeah. those of us that saw the evolution and the changes and everything, because we were in the old music business, it's, it's so much to wrap your head around. And as you said, it, it's, you know, we, you, your classic line, which is, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever we told you last week has changed or something to that effect, because yeah. it's, it's changed since we've been on this podcast. That's exactly right. There's just so much to know, so much to learn, and um, and so much to talk about, which is why we yeah. love doing this because we're learning as we're as we're earning or or as yeah. we're as we're doing as we hit record, we're learning a lot every day. Yeah, and we could do this every day, and we we joked about it. Maybe someday we will do it, you know, as as a daily because there is so much going on in the music industry that there's no shortage of um, things to talk about, interesting things to talk about. And we have to leave off so much in order, you know, so we don't have an eight hour podcast, you know, every yeah. weekend, but yeah, who knows? Exactly. We'll, we'll see, we'll see where it evolves. That's right. And by the way, the guy that I get to spend uh, a weekend for more than an hour with is none other than Jay Gilbert. He is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, which you better know by now is weekly music news for the new music business. And of course he is a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music and Warner Music. So he's uh, been around the block, so to speak. Thank you, my friend. Uh, and this is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI and Universal Music. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And by the way, we, we, we are so, so thankful because we could not do the show without the loving support <laughs> Of our sponsors, and man, amen, brother. We lean on them, and uh, big thanks to TiVo Music Metadata, dedicated to bringing order to the chaos of digital music. TiVo Music Metadata offers obsessively deduplicated artist album and song IDs, expert written editorial content and ratings, verified images, weighted deep descriptors, similar artists, band members, and influences, authoritative credits, personalization, discovery, and search APIs, purpose built solutions for classical music, and a global connected car platform linking broadcast radio and streaming if you want to yeah. learn more jump over to tivo.com slash music and boy they are because we know data is oh. so important so it's, important Super and i want cool. to know more data about who played <laughs> the maracas on that song yeah. from 1967 so yeah there's some new innovations we're going to be talking about in one of the stories coming up so stand by um your morning coffee podcast is also brought to you by our friends at banzoogle built by musicians for musicians. Uh, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform, makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website, everything is built in. Trust me, I've used this. I've built many sites on this. It, it is absolutely easy to use. Uh, it has hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, right? So you don't have to start from scratch. Tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, 
commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools that'll help you grow your fan list and send newsletters out, social media integrations, and live support for from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to banzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use a promo code Morning Coffee, all one word, Morning Coffee. That'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's banzoogle.com, promo code Morning Coffee. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot since 2004, if you can believe that. HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Owen Davis, HypeBot, and sister music blog, Music Think Tank, or published by live music discovery and marketing platform, Bands in Town. Speaking of Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard, and that'll help them manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Indeed. Big thanks to all of our sponsors, TiVo Music, Metadata, Bands in Town, Hypebot, Bandzoogle. Boy, we could not do it without them. So big we appreciate thanks. it. We are blessed. We are blessed. Well, Jay, let us jump into the stories. Mm. And you you kind of nailed this, you know, at the beginning when we were just got on early and talked started talking before we hit record about the sort of this is this is a, a tragic story. And this, of course, yeah. is from the L.A. Times. Astro Award organizers had extensive medical security, uh, had extensive medical and security plans. Did they follow them? And, you know, this is one of those stories where I almost can't look, you know, yeah. it's. It's, it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, and um, there was a yeah. lot of news this week about about this tragedy, um, Astro World, and uh, Travis Scott's uh, performance there. And um, I did something you know we don't normally do, and I had four stories on this because there's so much information and so many different takes. The one that we're going to talk about, of course, is from the L.A. Times. There was also one from Slate. The headline was "What Really Made Astro World So Deadly." There was one from NPR, which was really fascinating. It talked about eight tips to follow if you're trapped in a crushing crowd. Mm -hmm. And then the last one was tragedy on trial. Everything you need to know about World lawsuits because, you know, they're coming fast and furious. And I've been involved. I don't know if you have. I've been involved in at least one what they call a crushing crowd. I was at a Cheap Trick concert at the Paramount Theater in Portland, Oregon, and we had all basically stayed the night uh, to get front row seats, which is, you know, what you had to do in those days. And they had this uh, entryway um, to the venue, and it was kind of this corridor, and there were too many people jammed in there, and I was off my feet. Um, wow. In the crowd, I was not touching the ground, and it was horrifying. And I know they talk about in this LA Times piece that when you're in a, a crushing crowd like that, it's tough to breathe because the body heat and just the pressure of Compression. the crowd, yeah. yeah, it can, people pass out sometimes. And then if you go down, you know, um, God help you because you, you can get trampled to death. And you'll remember back in December of 1979, um, The Who at uh, Riverfront Coliseum, 11 people died. That's right. And it was just uh, such a tragedy and it really kind of changed the way um, a lot of concerts were put on for a while. Um, they 
they tried to get rid of festival seating. They felt that mm-hmm. that was part of the the issue. But uh, wow, let's let's talk about Astro World a little bit. For those that don't know, um, Astro World. Um, it's like Six Flags Astro World, commonly called Astro World in Houston, Texas, um, located at uh, NRG Park, which is you know they have multiple venues there, uh, including the uh, Astrodome. Um, and it, this was at a Travis Scott concert. He took the stage at around 9 p.m. Uh, on Friday night, um, and um, people started uh, you know calling for medical aid as the crowd surged, um, there were a lot of people reported that had basically jumped the fence and snuck in. So they don't mm-hmm. really have an accurate count of how many people were, were there. Um, but eight people died ranging in ages of 14 to 27, over two dozen were hospitalized and, you know, tons more were injured. And, you know, there was these rumors going around that, somebody had a, a, a hypodermic needle or some kind of a, something that was, you know, they were poking people with it and, you know, injecting drugs. And this was reported, I think, from TMZ and other sources, which later they found out wasn't really the case. But there was so much misinformation and so much confusion. Um, just a, a, a tragedy for the families. Yeah. Of these kids. Yeah, and and they they did have medical plans and security plans in place, and I think one of the things that's going to come out at some point is you know how did those things basically change? And and somebody here was saying what caught my attention, and this was in some of the the plans, is there's no mention of crowd management of the audience in front of the stage. It's not even addressed. Neither is moshing, crowd surfing, or stage diving. Neither do neither do the terms crowd crush, crowd surge, crowd collapse, or panic appear anywhere. Apparently, that's more typical to see those those references. And right. you know, this mm. is you know, this is of course also is it, it, it's it's how would you what, what's the right way of saying it about this artist? You know, this is an artist that that is um, his shows are known for being very active, shall we say, and and having very enthusiastic crowds. To say and the maybe least. that he's encouraged, and uh, maybe some that, of that he's behavior he's well. been Absolutely. accused of, right? Yes, exactly. And I think you know one of the things that 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 as I've read through the various articles that kind of shocked me is that there didn't seem to be any sort of communication between the artist and what was going on in the crowd. And it should have been shut down and at no point should it right. continue. And, and, right. and, and, and that's, that's just what I was struck with reading. All yeah, the Cause he went I've on to read. play another 40 minutes yeah, after exactly. this had happened. And there were fans in this piece. They talk about uh, one woman, young woman who jumped up, uh, and, you know, close to the stage and was telling one of the lighting guys, you know, people are, you know, hurt here. People are dying here. You know, we need, we need help. And he basically threatened to, you know, push her off the platform. Right. And, um, you know, the show just kept going. Um, there, there was a statement released about the allegations of, uh, you know, not enough medical staff and equipment. And, and I'll just read from this, uh, this statement. It says, we were prepared for the size of the venue and the expected audience with a trained team of medics. There were ample resources of medication, remedies, treatments, and supplies, and the demand and usage did not exceed the on-site, on-site stock. From the beginning, the crowd 
I'm sorry, from the beginning, the event occurred with a standard course of care throughout the day. The multiple cardiac arrests occurred during the um, last set of the evening. Um, there may have been enough medics there, but there were people who complained that they they had uh, people who were having cardiac arrest, but they had only one defibrillator, and that there yes. were people that were doing CPR that weren't um, skilled in performing CPR. They talk about one person who was doing it too shallow and too fast and things like that. It was just a, a perfect storm um, of unpreparedness. And um, it just breaks my heart to read these stories, um, these individual stories within that talk about people who were caught up in it and escaped um, and saw, you know, basically layers of people that they were stepping over. Well, and, 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 and the, 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 the part of it that was particularly dangerous happened, you know, somewhere between eight and 10 o'clock. But they also mentioned in the article, it said, this was one of the consequences, the vibe was just off. It wasn't actually mosh pits. People were just pushing each other. Walls were getting made and people were getting sucked in. I'm normally in the mix. I just realized it was too much. And they said by 2 p.m., so I mean, this is like easily six, seven hours before, hundreds of fans had breached a VIP entrance just as they breached an area at the last Astro World back in 2019. At that point, they got the police got the area under control and decided not to shut anything down. But so... A lot of people were saying this was just, you know, it, it was ramping were, up. It was ramping up. That's the best way of saying. And it. and there was there were red flags there that, um, in in hindsight, um, people should have noticed. One of the stories that it just broke my heart is from uh, this twenty one year old uh, woman, Sienna Faith McCarty. Um, she's from the Houston uh, area. And it says that at one point she lost her balance and nearly fell. She yelled to a man who pulled her up. Eventually, she was able to get back, um, get to the back of the crowd. A man pulled her over the guardrail, and she spotted a cameraman on an elevated platform, you know, eyes fixed on the stage. This is the one I was referencing earlier. She climbed a ladder and pointed to the hole, telling him people were dying. He told her to get off the platform. Another man grabbed her arm and told her he would push her off the 15-foot platform if she didn't get down. She said, I was in disbelief. Here were two people that could actually do something, that had the power to do something, cut the camera, call in backup, pause something. They did nothing. Yeah. There was another reference to about uh, around 4.30, um, one of the concert goers said he started feeling overwhelmed by the density of the crowd as Houston rapper Don Tolliver appeared on, at a smaller stage. So, you know, again, you've got these sort of, even before the main act had, was, was going to get on, you've got these issues of people saying, you know, the vibe felt bad and there was already this kind of kind of stuff going on. And then it, as, as this article points out, at about 8.30 p.m., a countdown appeared on the concert's big screen, ticking down the minutes to the show. And even at that point, uh, they mention it says, as the crowd pressed in, a woman named Madeline Eskins, who's 23 and an ICU, an ICU nurse who lives in, in Houston, fainted. Her boyfriend got someone to help, her, to help him lift her up in the air, and, and the crowd surfed her unconscious over a fence into a less crowded VIP area where she awoke to find emergency personnel woefully unprepared. So yeah. here you are. The, it's being counted down, and it's starting to get ugly before the the before the main main act even shows up on stage. Yeah. And boy, yeah. it's just you can just only imagine the the horror of it. <sighs> it's just awful. 
there's a um, a mention of uh, Lena Hidalgo, chief executive for Houston's uh, Harris County, which owns NRG Park. Uh, arrived at 1.30 a.m. and met with families searching for lost loved ones. Um, she has since called for an independent investigation into what re- went wrong, but she noted that World organizers' plans didn't show where security guards were deployed or how many were in the crowd. So I know there's going to be investigations. They're going to find out, you know, what went wrong. And hopefully, hopefully we can learn from this so we can keep this from happening again. Um, it just sounds like it was a perfect storm of, you know, things that went wrong and could go wrong. And, you know, maybe the, the planning or not following the plans. I don't know. Um, that, that will all come out. Um, but it, it's just a heartbreaking, uh, situation there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's it seems like, you know, certainly if, if you're of a certain age, you remember when that Who concert in 1979 happened. And, you know, my, you know, my sort of presumption of going to any concert is, you know, lessons were learned and that would never be repeated again. Yeah. And here we are talking about it again, you know, decades later. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. horrible stuff. Uh. Yeah, that's, the, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we hit record that, you know, we're typically reporting on good news. And this yeah. is really one of the first stories, if not the first story, where we've had to report on and talk about something like this. Um, but uh, hopefully we will learn from this. Yeah, well, let's jump over to uh, some more typical fare for us. Uh, yeah. This is from Music Business Worldwide. We are talking about TikTok. TikTok and social media's explosion in music is only going to get louder. And this yeah. is a guest column, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Or an op-ed, yes. op-ed, not a guest column, sorry. Uh, Luca Zak, who is the founding partner of We Generate, a global marketing yep. agency specializing in digital platforms, uh, talking about the rise. And, you know, when you... Again, certainly we 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 talk about TikTok every week, literally, yeah, uh, in some manner, shape, or form. But when you kind of sit back and you look at some of those global numbers, God, it just is insane. As he says in this, uh, basically, TikTok surpassed one billion global monthly active billion users. with a B. Billion with a B. And he says, to put that into perspective, just 21 months prior, it had 508 million monthly active users. So basically, TikTok has doubled its global audience in less than two years. This rate of growth has been evident in the world's biggest music market, the US, where we are, of course, sitting right now. TikTok had 39.9 million monthly average, excuse me, monthly active users in the US back in October of 2019, uh, compared to get it a hundred million today that's almost three times growth that's crazy that crazy enormous. growth and you know the uh the pandemic um certainly saw um uh, a lot of increases in their audience you know they went from being that app formerly formerly known as musically um you know and it was famous for lip sync these short lip sync videos and um but it didn't have nearly the audience of what it would become, you know, with TikTok. And uh, now I forgot about it, Musically, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I completely it, forgot about it that. It was name. a thing for a, a, a while, <laughs> and when I heard that they were bought up, I think the company was ByteDance. Um, we thought that it was 
you know, it was going to go away or it was going to be something uh, totally different. And really, TikTok is, well, a lot of it still is about dance routines. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw that with um, Old Town Road and, you know, there's been so many different uh, challenges and dance routines and th- those generate tons of uh, views and uh, tons of streams of music. Um, but it's really become a part of the music business because it's not just teenagers dancing. There are adults on there. Um, we, uh, you know, I'm, I belong to this management collective. And one time we had somebody on um, from TikTok talking about basically adults who are creating these channels and growing audiences. My only complaint about TikTok, looking at the data, is that it's probably the easiest platform to gain views and the toughest to gain real lasting engagement. And just Mm -hmm. because you have a lot of views of your video doesn't mean that you're going to get more streams on DSPs. It doesn't mean you're going to get more views on YouTube. And it doesn't mean you're going to get followers on your socials. You can get all of the above, but we've seen videos take off where that wasn't the case. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. And the other part of it that I think we should mention is that now people are copying them, you know, other platforms like, you know, um, Instagram and YouTube, you know, um, Instagram launched uh, reels at the end of last Mm -hmm. summer, you know, uh, YouTube has their thing. And it's, it's now everybody's kind of getting into these little short, uh, bite-sized chunk, uh, videos. Um, and it's it's really helped a lot of artists in the music industry. You know, we talked about um, Fleetwood Mac and the Ocean Spray thing. And mm-hmm. so it's helped catalog. It's broken artists. You know, there have been artists who really started their career from getting popular on TikTok. It, it is a beast. It is a beast. Um, and I want to find this, this particular line in here that was... Uh, well, well, you're looking and, and for I, that. I just want to mention really quick that, that yeah. YouTube thing. I just remembered it's it's called Shorts. shorts. YouTube yeah, shorts. shorts. YouTube Shorts. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. You know, um, it's generated more than 15 billion uh, global views. Um, that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah, and they recently announced a hundred million dollar Shorts fund to be distributed this year and into 2022 amongst creators on the platform. Not to be confused with Bermuda Shorts. That's YouTube Shorts. Um, but you know, and, and full disclosure, I think I've mentioned this before one time on on the on the podcast, which is I I, I will admit that when that when when Musically came out. And then even even morphed into TikTok. I just thought it was so stupid. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> what is this? You know, and and uh, again, belying my age. Clearly, um, I just thought, yeah, what what, what is what a distraction. I mean, I, I I could saw how funny it was, but it was just like, yeah, yeah, what is this? But you well, know, whatever. You just you just mentioned you know YouTube and um, their fund that hundred million dollar fund you know to kind of help creators. TikTok yeah. has a creator fund too, and it's two hundred million. And look, they throw gasoline on a fire. So if you're a creator, and Twitch does this too, if you're a creator and you're starting to trend and you're starting to do some interesting things and grow your audience they'll give you money to continue to post regularly on their platform. And that's smart. And that's another revenue source for artists. Yeah. 
absolutely. One of the things that, that they talked about in this article, which is so true, which is the growth is happening so rapidly that it's not always easy to keep up and to execute a digital strategy, strategy, strategy that is fully plugged in, in quotation marks, to new developments. And that's kind of, again, you know, we, what I think you and I talked about off air before we even started recording, which is, Oh my God, you know, when you, when you see sort of rapid growth like that, and then you also mentioned that success on TikTok may equate to success elsewhere, but maybe not. So it it has the potential to do that. But so they say the landscape changes daily. Yeah. Um, and, and and they said that's good news for a company like them, the guy who, who wrote this article. Um, but it said adding to the complication is the fact that mo- the most effective type of marketing for artists on TikTok at all today may be a heavily targeted one. So a strategy is required when you're hitting communities, creators, accounts, and pages with synchronized analytics. Yet the print the key principles of audience building on these platforms, whether it's TikTok to Reels, Shorts, etc aren't actually anything new to record labels, music publishers, and artist managers. While, yes, we have seen some creators grow huge audiences following one big viral video, most of the success stories involve a slower build over many months and years and are simply rooted in well-produced, compelling content. Where have we heard that before, Jay? That is the key thing from this, this piece. And if you don't remember anything else, uh, that the other part that I think is really interesting, you and I talk about Tencent and how, you know, only about 35% of their revenue is generated from streaming. The rest is through, you know, tipping and, and uh, other purchases like merch and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's where TikTok is really growing quickly. Um, they're, they're aiming to facilitate more than $185 billion of e-commerce annually by next year. Ambitious goal? Yeah. But consider that their parent company, ByteDance, you know, um, largely thanks to its, you know, TikTok sister product, uh, Doyen, they sold $26 billion in makeup, clothing, and merch last year, according to Bloomberg. So these... It's another way to monetize. You know, you and I were talking last week about Spotify and they've teamed up uh, with a partnership with Shopify. And now you can have this fully integrated merch store in your artist page. This is the future of the music industry is monetizing things like virtual goods, you know. Yeah. Um, And we'll talk about this in in the next story. Next article, yeah, About monetization. But TikTok is... Uh, groundbreaking in that they're not just focusing on their core product of these videos, but there's, there's advertising, there's placement, there's merch, there's all sorts of ways to uh, grow revenue there. So I, I get it. Some folks that are, you know, a little bit older, you know, they don't want to watch uh, videos of, you know, 16 year olds dancing to a song, but it's so much more than that. And it's a pretty cool algorithm that learns, you know, as you're watching things, what you're spending time with, and it feeds you more of things that you like, just like Facebook or YouTube or mm-hmm. anything else. Um, but I I really enjoy uh, TikTok and have um, seen some new developing artists through there. Um, and I like to kind of watch um, what people are doing to grab people's attention because yes. you're flipping through your feed there we always say that you have just two or three seconds to grab someone's attention. If you have a video that has a long uh, intro or has a title card, artist, title, no. Um, people are going to skip right on by that thing. 
So TikTok is so good at, you know, don't bore us, get to the chorus, right? Mm -hmm. They just, they hit that action fast. So as you're developing these video assets, you know, the TikTok way of grabbing people's attention can be translated to, you know, other assets that video assets that you make for socials, for YouTube, um, for, for everything it, you got to grab their attention fast or they're going to move right on by. Totally. Absolutely. Interesting article. And again, when you look at those numbers, it's pretty shocking, but I'm sure you've been in that conversation with artist managers where they say, we just want to have a viral video. Help us get a viral video. (laughs) I have heard that. Yeah, I'm sure you have. And it's like, yeah, uh, that's, that's, they're not going to happen. But again, we talk about, you know, the slower build and, and, you know, a, a, that's the key. Out, well thought out plan. That is the key, you know, and, yeah. and always will be probably And it. And there you have it. So anyway, Absolutely. on to the next article, Jay, from our good friends over at Hypebot. Will alternative monetization, in quotation marks, drive tomorrow's music creator economy? And uh, it's, a, <laughs> again, this is very, this is in many ways the epitome of the new music business. Absolutely. This article. Yep, and it's uh, as they as it starts off saying a growing number of creators are less concerned with music streaming revenue and finding success by focusing on alternative monetization and yes. what once was considered ancillary revenue is the future of a new music creator is the future of a new music creator economy. That's uh, that, that, that's that's the story. If you yeah, this story could just be that paragraph because right. it's absolutely accurate um a lot of creators are they're not paying a lot of attention to streaming because of the the low payouts the low revenue and they're going to platforms like twitch where they're making you know as we've reported on some serious uh, money that they couldn't have made just from sales streams and downloads this this piece um was written by chris thakrar uh from media and we love mm-hmm. media um we love the team over there. They're they're doing really interesting things. If you want to dig deep into some of the the research over there, their pieces are phenomenal. But you know, he touches on you know recent deals like you know Tina Turner and BMG, and you know we we talk frequently about people buying up rights of publishing or future earnings. You know the Merck and hypnosis of the world, if that's a word. Um, but this is absolutely important that artists understand that in order to get revenue, um, you have to think beyond sales streams and downloads. And I, I jotted down a few of them that you and I talk about frequently, just, just for the conversation. So if you're wondering what alternative monetization is, um, here, here are a few of them. We touched on selling off rights to publishing and future earnings. Uh, another one is virtual goods, you know, things like mm-hmm. NFTs, but also remember in this metaverse that we talk about all the time, um, people are buying virtual goods for online. It could be a, a, a weapon in a game. It could be you know an outfit in a virtual world. It can be a lot of different things, NFTs. The other thing, experiences are becoming more and more popular. You know, platforms like Cameo, Thrills.co.uk, um, where you know you can get um, an artist to, you know, give you a shout out or sing happy birthday to yeah. a friend of yours. Um, you and I have talked a little bit about, uh, 
one uh, client that I worked with and did some really interesting things with experiences was the Licorice Quartet. Mm-hmm. And former members of Jellyfish and all sorts of other great uh, bands, fantastic uh, musicians. But we kind of experimented with them. Um, you can go to their website and you can get a piano lesson from Roger Manning, right? You yeah. can, in a non-COVID world, you can go record shopping with them. They'll write a song for you. They'll write a song with you. They'll perform on your song. Those are experiences and they can be monetized and there, it's just a whole nother step from like the paid meet and greet kind of thing. A couple of others, subscriptions. You can subscribe, whether it's Patreon or through Banzoogle or however you want to do it. You can actually engage with your super fans and they can subscribe to you and you can provide uh, monthly things uh, for them. Crowdfunding is still a thing. Um, if you want to get involved, you and I were talking about a company a while back called Crates, Q-R-A-T-E-S. Mm-hmm. Um, out of uh, Tokyo, they did some really cool stuff. So smart. They bought up um, capacity at pressing plants around the world. And now if you and I wanted to get vinyl made, instead of waiting the 24 weeks that most people are waiting or more, we can do it in 12 to 14 weeks at crates because they have the capacity in all these different uh, territories. Um, And they have a crowdfunding process. thing in there where let's say I think the minimum is like a hundred pieces of vinyl. We can crowdfund that and we're not pressing it up and we're not charging people's credit cards until we hit that number. And then once we hit that hundred, then they go ahead and press those up. You've already paid for it. That's crowdfunding. And the last two um, sync licensing is still just such a great way to get revenue for your music. It used to be kind of uncool. You remember, uh, Neil Young you know, railed against yes, it, right. you know, yeah. back in the day. Um, but you can make substantial revenue with uh, sync licensing. And then the last yeah. thing is kind of brand partnerships. You know, um, don't it could be something like your local coffee house um, that you work out uh, a brand partnership with, or you know, one of my clients has a partnership with a um, t-shirt maker, and they promote each other's work. So those are some ways, you know, when, when we talk about alternative monetization, it's not all about sales streams and downloads. Right. And they mentioned uh, a creator's voice, style, and expression of personality can become potential sources of revenue as well. They note, they noted that the artist Katie B uh, on not returning to recording after five years out commented in The Guardian recently that she was intrigued to see how many creators make money on Instagram without having any tracks released. A new rights infrastructure might allow creators to effectively and efficiently monetize the value surrounding them, which is really an interesting concept. Beyond the music itself, platforms are already extracting value from creators in this way, but these assets are not exploited at its scale or added to catalogs in the same way as publishing and masters. When the holistic embodiment of a creator is wrapped up as an asset which is an interesting phrase, when the holistic embodiment of a creator is wrapped up as an asset, then it provides a foundation to remunerate creators in entirely new ways, both currently and in the future. And that is a trip to think about that. And earlier in the article, they mentioned uh, disruptive technologies such as AI deepfakes of an artist's voice have the potential to be in increasing parts of our everyday lives. So you're looking at, again, NFTs and deep AI deepfakes and all. Yeah, I saw this new band. There was a story about this new band that was all made up of, you know, these avatars. They're not real. Right. 
And, right. you know, other ways of um, monetization, you and I have um, talked about interpolations, you know, where people mm-hmm. basically take somebody else's melody and create a song around it, which is totally different than just, you know, samples and things like that. And it's just so exciting now because it's not just you get a record deal, you know, you sell records, you tour and you get, you know, radio airplay or, you know, it's not that simple anymore. Um, Sometimes you, you use those um, old ways of making revenue, but there's so many new ways of making uh, revenue. And, um, you know, uh, this media has really dug into emerging technologies, you know, uh, things like the the cloud and blockchain and, you know, platforms like Sync Tank and Revelator and Utopia, you know, they're already um, what they call alternatives to the outdated in industry infrastructure. So right. don't feel like you're a hundred years old because you, you don't understand these things because like you mentioned earlier, it's changed while we've been on this conversation and it's going to be evolving, but I think this is such an important um, piece. And that that first paragraph that you read totally says it all. You know that yeah. we're not going to be getting our revenue just from music streaming. Um, there are all all sorts of alternative ways uh, to monetize, and and that's super exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely, great stuff. And it's talk about food for thought and and making your head explode. <laughs> It's like, whoa, okay, I'm now thinking about this strange alternative monetization strategy, and it's it's a lot to get your head around. It but. is, but there's a, there's a white paper that uh, Midia did um, yes. called Growth from Transparency, and there's a link in this article if you want to dig into that. But, you know, read your morning coffee, uh, l- listen to uh, Mike and I dig through it, and count on the fact that we're going to be talking about alternative ways to monetize a lot. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And for the last article, Jay, our good friends over at Spotify, here we go from Spotify for artists, celebrating artists success with Spotify charts, new website, new charts and new features. They continue to innovate over there. Oh, they sure wacky do. kids at Spotify. How many times have we said that? It's so I true. Know. They, they do continue uh, to innovate, and the, these charts are so amazing. You can sort it by, you know, what they call their flagship charts, their genre charts. Um, if you're into charts, the, this page is it's so cool. You know, they have city <laughs> charts. My only complaint is that their search functionality seems to be uh, broken or maybe not quite set up yet because when when you try to search for something, the moment you type one letter in, it says could not be found, right? Um, right. So I, I had some real issues because I wanted to see if I could search by artist, you know. So I started plugging in some popular artists, um, Olivia Rodrigo, Cardi B, um, Doja Cat, and it is immediately said, you know, no results, but yet I click on the chart and there it is. So it's, it's new. It's through Spotify for artists. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's a link in, uh, in your morning coffee. Um, but I had a lot of fun, uh, sorting it. Like you can look at different territories and kind of see what what's popular in those territories. And I, I find it really interesting that, um, there are certain territories, um, where, They'll listen to everything. And then there are those certain markets where they like a lot more local repertoire like uh, France and Japan. It's, it's super interesting to kind of dig into this. 
So they go in, in terms of the um, the cities. So it's two hundred top cities, right? Currently, where they basically include um, that, that that they basically focus on. Um, and I, any surprise? I mean, I think artists in general sometimes are surprised where their music resonates, right? It, it's and and I know you look at charts far more than I do in terms of that that sort of um, micro and macro data, but. Um, how important is is that city demographic stuff when you're working with artists and and they're they're kind of surprised what what, yeah. what do you what what is the action item though you do with that information well it's it's so important to go into your spotify for artists apple music for artists amazon music for artists your youtube analytics all those different things you know facebook and, and find out where your tribe is and mm-hmm. it might surprise you um, sometimes there are markets um, they call trigger cities where they're kind of up and coming and places where things pop from first. There are later developing um, territories. So you might see, oh, well, last year I had a lot of uh, popularity in Mexico City. Um, and that's because, you know, it's kind of late later to the game, some of mm-hmm. those. But I think it's really important to know where your audience is and it can vary by song and by release depending on um you know the genre and mood of what you're putting out and there's some obvious things that you can do with that data one is maybe you could route a tour right maybe you could do some targeted advertising uh, to those markets um you could use that with if you're handling publicity yourself or if you have a publicist to target outlets in those markets to help you grow your your base, because we always say a fan is a fan. It doesn't matter if they are in Berlin, Chicago, Barcelona. It a fan is a fan. The mm-hmm. only time that it really, um, I, I think, makes you kind of think about it is when you're routing a tour. Let's say in the United States, sure. then you want to look at that data and not be concerned so much with uh, Berlin. But there's so much great information um, that you can get from Spotify for artists and. I just had a lot of fun uh, looking over these different, um, like top songs globally, you know, top artists globally, you know, and then you can kind of dig down into like daily viral songs. And I was exposed to some songs that I'd never heard of, um, which is great. You know, it's, it's a really good place to just see what's, what they show you, you know, like what's trending, what's, you know, what's coming up. Um, and it's, um, they'll tell you if it's, you know, going down the chart, if it's going up the chart, if it's new, it has a, you know, a little new button on there. So, um, again, Spotify has done so many things that are, uh, really, um, innovative. Um, and, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention on these charts, it also, you know, kind of shows you what, uh, the peak position was. Um, and, and I find that really interesting too, where you can see, um, kind of the path of some of these songs. Yeah. Well, it, it is a supreme rabbit hole at the very least, right? I mean, it's 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 easy to go deep and to get lost. Or for me it yeah. is anyway. Yeah. You you have a little better head for that than I do, but uh again, it's just like in many ways it's overwhelming and it's just fantastic information, but one of the skills that certainly you bring to the table and people that have this skill set is to what to do with all of this data and how do you That's the challenge. You effectively yeah manage it and act towards it or act in accordance with what that is. 
Yeah. Generally. By the way, we 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 talk so much about Spotify's innovations because they're innovating like crazy. Um, mm-hmm. Special shout out to Apple Music. Um, they've launched a really cool thing within Apple Music where they animate the headers and the album covers. Yes. And it's it's super cool. Um, go check out you know uh, some of your your favorite artists. Um, I think. Uh, Doja Cat had a really cool one. Ed Sheeran had a really cool one. It's, it can be a video of just like Ed's. It's just a video of him kind of looking around. That's the header, and it's it's really cool. <laughs> and then if you click on the new album, the there's an animation within the album, and it's really compelling. It's and it's really kind of fun to watch while you're listening. Not unlike maybe Spotify's Canvas, you know, eight second looping video or something like that. But uh, but check it out on Apple Music and a huge shout out to uh, Apple Music. That, that was super cool. Yeah. And before we wrap up, we you and I spoke before, we're not going to go too deep in it, but we did mention this great article in this, this, uh, this week's uh, newsletter uh, from an article in the Wall Street Journal. We compared Taylor's version songs with the original Taylor Swift albums. And they have, they have two songs. It says the same song, the same artist, two different copyright owners. Can you hear the difference? And, uh, Boy, they are close, and we talked about the reasons that that could be the case. So, yeah. at the very least, worth checking out and listening for yourself and seeing the the two the the new Taylor's version, basically her in quotation marks re-records, yeah, um, and then the originals. So, I wonder what the typical out. re-record clause is for those that don't know. Typically, when you you know sign a record deal, um, you can't just re-record those and put them out because the record company wants to monetize that. But there's typically a term X amount of years and then Mm -hmm. that expires. And I remember some years ago, maybe 10 years ago, Kiss re-recorded their greatest hits and that was available in Japan. And then later, I think part of a set with a Walmart exclusive for monster, if I'm not mistaken, but um, I could be wrong, but they re-recorded songs from, you know, the seventies and eighties and made them sound pretty close to the the originals. Yeah. It was really startling. And when I look, I'm not an audiophile. Um, you know more about that world than I do. Um, but I can tell you that when I went in and listened to the new versions of Taylor Swift songs, you know, they have a sample here of like Wildest Dreams, you know, um, from you know 1989. And you know, seven years later, she re-records it. And to my ears, I can barely tell any difference. And if I was in, you know, listening to it on the radio or streaming somewhere, you know, where there was other things going on, like at dinner or driving a car that has a little noise or whatever, I, there's no way I could tell the difference that that nope. wasn't the original one. And, you know, uh, kudos to her and her team. That's pretty amazing to, to do that. Well, and we were wondering, you know, exactly how did they do it? You know, you mentioned... Kiss going back and re-recording some of their classic songs. Well, that's a little harder because in those days you were recording to tape, right? And, you know, you used sort of microphones and compressors and things of the day. Uh, But I'm going to guess that most of Taylor Swift's music, although I don't know this for a fact, but was recorded digitally and, and in a, you know, digital audio workstation like Pro Tools or Logic or whatever they were using. So once you've, once you've done it, that way recorded that way 
Well, it's just like a Word document. You could just copy and, and save an entire, save those files, basically. And I'm wondering if in the case of these Taylor Swift tunes, um, somebody just had all the all the session files saved and just, you know, copies of it. So it's basically go, like going back and everything's still there. You're just going to kind of move it around a little bit or make yeah. slight changes. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer. My, that could be the case. My, my gut tells me that the people who own those originals um, would see that as a, a, a breach because they would be technically using their masters. Again, I don't know. This is new ground. Um, we'll mm -hmm. see. But I do recommend people look at this Wall Street Journal piece because it shows basically the path of how a sound recording is made and, you know, mm -hmm. the differences between the master and the musical work, you know, for publishing. And it lays it out really beautifully. Um, you can just visually kind of see what's happened with her musical works and how they were, you know, purchased and how... You know, the original recording is now owned by Shamrock Capital and her uh, new version is hers that she can now monetize and, you know, get sync licensing for, you know. Yes. Uh, that's one of the reasons I believe Kiss did their re-records is now if somebody wanted, you know, rock and roll all night for a film or a commercial or a video game, they can use theirs and they get that negotiated sync fee, mm -hmm. not the universal, the owner of the master. So... Yeah, this is uh, kind of new territory. And um, I think what really surprised me was how close these recordings uh, sounded. Now, whether they use those original files or not, well, you know, that remains to be seen. But even the vocals, you know, she obviously re-sang them. And some of these were from years ago. And voices change. Voices, mm -hmm. and even, as you know, uh, into recording, Using a different microphone will make something sound different. Having the distance from the microphone to the person, yep. you know, uh, Al Schmidt, you know, God rest his soul, as a producer and engineer, he was old school. He he didn't do a lot of the work on the board. It was in putting the microphones and things in a certain place to get mm -hmm. the tones that he wanted. And so that's the thing that I wonder about these Taylor Swift recordings is... Uh, how how did she get that vocal to but again to so your point cool. it's it's so digital today that it, maybe that makes it easier to replicate i don't know mm, yeah yeah we'll find maybe 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 we'll know more as these things go on but re-records are not new by the way you know i've i've certainly worked with a bunch of artists over the years that oh yeah you know especially older Patsy artists Klein did it back in the day yes i mean a lot exactly. of artists did yeah Absolutely. So there's a lot of different versions of, you know, especially when you go back to the 60s and 70s artists, a lot of different versions out there. And and at one point when when the when uh, iTunes first came out, when that was kind of the big dog on the block, um, there wasn't a differentiation. So you would go to maybe a song you liked from the 70s and there'd be like three versions of it. It was like, well, which one of these is the original? Eventually, uh, uh, Apple made you clean it up made you made you list it as a re-record when it was loaded in but in the original early on it was kind of the wild west so we'll be having this discussion more often because again <laughs> it's it's you know those those files are out there you know when you record digitally and i don't mean on digital tape like the early tape recorders that were yeah. digital recorders but i yeah. mean now like in a digital audio workstation like pro tools like logic or like reaper or ableton live any of those things um it's just 
it's just bits. And so, you know, you, you, and, and in the old days too, artists would typically turn in the stereo masters, but would hang on to the multi-tracks, you know, for whether, for various reasons. Good point. Because ultimately what they want is just, they want that stereo master. They want that mastered version that you release. So right. all the other components get lost and they're around and who knows what. So who knows what, Jay? Yeah. <laughs> very, very cool piece um, written by Kyle Kim for the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, yeah. we compared Taylor's version songs with the original Taylor Swift albums. The same song, same artist, two different copyright owners. Can you hear the difference? Exactly. And, and my answer is, yeah, I could hear the difference because I knew there was a difference. But if you just played it for me, I, I don't think I, I could tell. I really exactly. Don't. Exactly. Exactly. Well, on that note, Jay, let us wrap up this particular episode. Thank everyone for listening in. We certainly appreciate that because we know you got a lot of choices out there. So the fact that you kind of hang out with us once a week, we, we appreciate, appreciate it. it. We do. So thanks for listening in. For Jay Gilbert and myself, this has been episode number 66. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. <laughs>